John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Ding dong, Las Culturistas calling. iHeart Podcast Awards 2023 Podcast of the Year Las Culturistas with SNL's Bowen Yang and comedian Matt Rogers. There's stuff happening in 2024 that we really need to address. Pop culture and huge guests like the latest episode with Dua Lipa. The more I think about it, the more scared and nervous I get. Listen to the newest episode of Las Culturistas with Dua Lipa and all episodes on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Las Culturistas to start listening. Welcome to Creature Feature production of iHeart Radio. I'm your host of Mini Parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and today on the show, it's another listener questions episode. You can write to me your questions at creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com, and I will do my best to answer them. So let's get right into this comfy and cozy listener questions episode. First question. According to Matt Simon's Plight of the Living Dead, half of all animal species are parasites. How have parasites become so successful, and what role do they play in healthy ecosystems? Thanks, Michael D. from Sacramento. Hey, Michael. Thank you for your question. So first, I wanted to check on this, whether it is true that half of all animals are parasites. And it seems roughly accurate. I've seen about 40% uh, being a number kind of bandied about, but... I think it's a little bit tricky to get an exact proportion. Uh, One thing is that number of species is somewhat subjective. Like, do you count subspecies? How closely related are the different parasite species and so on? Um, And of course, biomass would be quite difficult to calculate as well. But I think the point still stands. There are a ton of parasites out there, perhaps more than we would be comfortable acknowledging. So to understand why there are so many different species of parasites, I think we should go over all the different kinds of parasites that are out there. Because not all parasites follow the flea-sucking blood type model for parasitism. So the flea uh, type, like the flea-sucking-your-blood, is an example of an ectoparasite. Ectoparasites live on the external body of their host and they feed on their host's blood, skin, or other important bodily components in a way that is detrimental to the host. An endoparasite is similar, but it lives inside the host. So an example would be a tapeworm. 
It feeds on the blood supply, flesh, fluids, things that are inside the host's body, which the host needs. Uh, Remember, parasites are necessarily, by definition, harmful to their hosts. It is a form of symbiosis in which uh, the parasite harms the host in order to benefit itself. So another type of parasite are the parasitoids. So parasitoids live on or in their host. Uh, But the difference between a parasitoid and another parasite is that parasitoids end up necessarily killing their host. So an example is basically any number of species of parasitoid wasp uh, who will lay her eggs on a host and those eggs hatch Uh, either on or inside of the host, and the larva will eat uh, the host until it is dead, like the parasitoid wasp that uh, attacks orb weaver spiders. These larvae will live on uh, the orb weaver, slowly drinking their fluids until the orb weaver is dead. Um, So a parasite that accidentally kills their host does not count as a parasitoid. Uh, So say you have a really bad tapeworm, you get really sick and you die. The tapeworm is not a parasitoid. It's just a parasite. It's not obligatory for the tapeworm to kill you. But parasitoids necessarily consume their host. Parasitoids can be ectoparasites, endoparasites, or in some cases, the host can be paralyzed, dragged back to a den, and slowly eaten over the course of hours, days, or even months. Uh, In fact, some parasitoids will specifically target non-essential organs first so that the host species lives longer. This gives them more opportunity to eat flesh that is not rotting, that is fresh. So parasitoids blur the line between the categories of predation and parasitism. Also blurring the lines are micropredators, such as mosquitoes or vampire bats. They are parasites, but they don't live on their host or on a single host. Instead, they go from host to host and will take little sips of their blood or uh, feed on whatever it is that they feed on. Uh, But they are not quite predators because they do not directly kill or consume their host. They can incidentally kill their host through spreading of pathogens, but this is not the same as, you know, as by definition killing uh, their prey. So they are micropredators, they are parasites, they don't kill their host, but they can accidentally kill their host through pathogens. And actually, speaking of spreading pathogens, this is related to another way to categorize parasites in terms of the way that transmission works. So vector-transmitted parasites use a taxi uh, in order to infect their host. So think of a uh, protozoan parasite that lives inside a mosquito. That mosquito goes to Uh, its target, maybe a human, maybe an animal, and plunges its proboscis into your skin. And then that protozoan can go on to infect you. So the protozoan is a vector-transmitted parasite. It is using 
the mosquito as a taxi and it enters the host via this little living taxi and it causes us all sorts of problems like malaria. Uh, so very important thing to know about these vector transmitted parasites if you are, say, a doctor or uh, epidemiologist. So directly transmitted parasites go by foot or wing, flagella, wind, etc. They directly transport themselves to their host. So an example would be a flea jumping onto your dog or you picking up a tick while walking through grass. Another type is trophically transmitted parasites. These are parasites that want to be eaten. They are eaten by their host, or as is often the case, they are eaten by one species and then a subsequent species, which is their true target. And then they reproduce and feed inside of their final target. An example of this includes roundworms. Another example is T. gondii, everyone's favorite rat zombifying protozoan. It will infest rats, it will cause lesions in their brains, which makes the rats uncharacteristically bold and affectionate towards felines, who uh, return the love by eating the rat. And the protozoan, this T. gondii, will happily reproduce inside the cat who then poops out more T. gondii, the poop gets around, the rat accidentally ingests some of that poop particle, and then it gets the T. gondii and the cycle begins again. This is a trophically transmitted parasite. There are other types of parasites that are sometimes forgotten, uh, different categories such as kleptoparasites. These are parasites that steal food from other animals. So seagulls, who love to snatch food out of another bird's beak are kleptoparasites. Brood parasites are parasites that will use the paternal or maternal care of another species in order to benefit their own offspring. So cuckoo birds laying their eggs and tricking other birds into raising their chicks is an example of a brood parasite. Now, a very tiny but interesting category is sexual parasitism. It describes only what anglerfish do. This only applies to anglerfish. Uh, specifically, it is where the male attaches itself to the female, physically grafts itself to the female. It actually uses an enzyme that kind of melts the skin of the female a little bit so it can kind of melt itself onto the female's flesh. Then it feeds off of her blood supply and the only thing it does in return is produce sperm. So the argument for this as a case of parasitism versus, say, mutualism is that the male takes more than he provides. So like if he's taking more of the female resources than he provides in terms of, say, sperm donation. Social parasites are another category of parasites. These are parasites that infiltrate eusocial or other types of social groups of animals, mimicking them or sneaking by unnoticed, uh, stealing resources from the group, tricking adults into feeding them or feeding on their young. So uh, there's a type of blue butterfly species where the caterpillar mimics the larva of ants. The ants will take it in and uh, sometimes it actually can imitate the queen signals of the ants, further tricking the ant colony. And it can go around feeding on larvae or 
allowing itself to be fed by the ants. So it's a really sneaky form of parasitism. Uh, a, another category is hyperparasitism. So hyperparasitism is basically the old rhyme, big fleas have little fleas upon their backs to bite them, and little fleas have lesser fleas and so on ad infinitum. So I actually had another listener question about how many levels of parasites you could have. This is from Jean-Luc Picorgi. Uh, and the answer seems to be at least five. And you see these chains of parasites in gall wasps. So a gall wasp, uh, the basic gall wasp, is a species of teeny tiny wasp that forms a gall on uh, a plant like an oak tree. What a, what a gall is, it's a bulb of flesh that the plant or tree is induced to create that does not benefit the tree, but it benefits this wasp. So the wasp uh, will drill a hole into the bark or skin of the plant. Uh, sometimes these galls are created on leaves and stuff, but we're focusing on an oak gall wasp. So it drills into the oak's flesh and then this bulb forms and uh, it, the gall wasps will lay its egg inside of this bulb. Uh, that is formed from basically this chemical that the, the larva excretes. And then this, this bulb that grows around the larva uh, has a fleshy interior that the larva feeds on. So it's feeding on the tree, it's harming the tree, and so that is why it is a parasite. Now there are other gall wasps that then take advantage of the previous gall wasp, the gall wasp that created this gall, this, this bulb, um, and then it lays its own offspring inside the other gall wasp's uh, gall. So it will sometimes harm the larva of the previous tenant of this gall. Uh, sometimes it uh, won't prevent it from developing, but it certainly steals resources from it. Uh, and then you have parasitoid wasps, like the cryptkeeper wasp. Remember, a parasitoid necessarily kills its host. So the cryptkeeper wasp will lay its eggs inside the gall on top of an existing larva. Um, and those eggs will hatch into carnivorous larvae, which will feed on the other gall wasps slowly. Again, the sort of a distinction between a predator and a parasitoid is a parasitoid feeds slowly on its host over a long period of time before killing it. So this parasitoid gall wasp will feed on the host larva and then it will continue to consume this uh, victim larva slowly. And as the victim larva grows and develops into an adult wasp, uh, the, the parasite larva will compel it to drill its way out of the gall. And then at this point, the parasite will actually behead the, uh, the host gall wasp. And that head blocks up the opening to the gall and basically creates a fleshy door. And then once that parasite larva continues to develop into an adult, it can then just basically eat its way through this head and emerge from the gall. So you can have chains of basically the first layer of parasitism is the initial gall-creating wasp that is a parasite on the oak tree. And then you have maybe a gall wasp that is a parasite and uh, infesting 
this uh, gall uh, by stealing essentially the resources from the gall, from the bulb itself. And then another type of parasite that will steal resources directly from the larva, eat them, consume them, a parasitoid. So you could actually get chains of this. Uh, and apparently it's been observed to be up to around five levels of parasitism. So things get wacky with these gall wasps. Really interesting. Um, so the point of giving you all of these examples is to demonstrate the wide variety of parasites and parasitic strategies, which gives you a sense of why there are so many parasites in the world. There are near endless opportunities for parasites to take advantage of. And typically when there is a niche, say there's some form of nutrition that can be exploited, there will be an organism that over millions of years evolves to exploit it. Uh, we have limited resources on the planet. There's a lot of competition for resources. So finding shortcuts or cheats can greatly enhance an animal's success. Uh, and of course, the host animals are also forced to develop strategies through evolution to try to counteract the parasite's attack. So in terms of what good they do for the ecosystem, by definition, parasites are bad for the individual host. Uh, there is no good parasite for an individual, but for, say, an ecosystem, they can actually be critical. So an ecosystem is a whole group, a, a delicate chain and web of animals interacting with each other. And so uh, even though a parasite may harm an individual, they could provide a benefit to the ecosystem. So for instance, nutritional biomass. Mosquitoes provide a huge biomass for other animals to feed on. Um, there's potential for parasites to keep certain species from growing too numerous, too dense, uh, which can maybe help with plant growth. Say you have, you know, too many deer or too many rabbits or something, and they're too dense, much like how predators will help keep these in check. Uh, parasites can also help keep them in check, and this can help uh, prevent, say, uh, plants from being devastated by too many herbivores. Uh, or, you know, it could keep a predator species in check, and then that helps prevent uh, too many predators from going around killing herbivores. Uh, so it, it can, you know, keep some of these things in balance. Um, and it can also increase the biodiversity of the host species through selective pressures. If you're a parasite and you're putting selective pressure on your host, you may force it to adapt in some way, and this can actually uh, result in speciation, so a new species arising from this. So this can increase biodiversity, increase genetic diversity, which is really important in a changing world where you may have certain shocks to an ecosystem. So having more genetic diversity uh, prevents a species from, say, being wiped out by a change in the environment because you have such a rich genetic library, you might be able to adapt to this change. So removing parasites from the planet, I think, would be very, very harmful, would be devastating uh, because it would weaken this intricate web. I like to call it like a Jenga tower, uh, these complex interspecific relationship between different species. And you remove one piece, maybe it doesn't do anything. But if you remove it, it could also make the whole tower collapse. So 
Uh, parasites, very important for an ecosystem, very harmful for an individual. Uh, but I love them because they're so weird and their strategies are so intricate and it's, it's almost spooky sometimes how good they are at exploiting. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we are going to answer another listener question. Ding dong, Las Culturistas calling. iHeart Podcast Awards 2023 Podcast of the Year Las Culturistas with SNL's Bowen Yang and comedian Matt Rogers. There's stuff happening in 2024 that we really need to address. Pop culture and huge guests like the latest episode with... Dua Lipa! The more I think about it, the more scared and nervous I get. Listen to the newest episode of Las Culturistas with Dua Lipa and all episodes on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Las Culturistas to start listening. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wildcard on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old <laughs> Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. All right, on to the next listener question. Uh, This one says, uh, less of a question and more a layman's observation. Maybe you've covered it before. Kind of unusual how frogs don't have teeth yet eat flies, making them omnivorous, right? And this is from Shermikeman. So, hi. Yeah, so some frogs are omnivorous, meaning they eat plants as well as meat or other things. Um, so om- omnivores eat a variety of different different foods, usually meat and plants, maybe fruit, maybe nuts, seeds, whatever. So some frogs do eat both plant matter and uh, insects. But if a hypothetical frog, um, among which there are many species that only eat flies or only eat uh, insects, um, it would make it insectivorous. So insectivores are a type of carnivore, a carnivore that specializes in eating insects. So some frogs will be omnivores, some frogs will be insectivores, or some will be carnivores because they can eat both insects, small mammals, other frogs. It kind of depends on the frog size. Frogs really love to basically eat anything it can fit in its mouth. Frogs typically aren't super picky when it comes to live prey, as long as they can fit it inside of them. So on to the teeth. Uh, now, it's true that frogs do not have a prominent visible set of teeth. Uh, But not all frogs are toothless. 
Uh, some are, and almost all frogs lack lower teeth, but there are uh, many species of frogs that have tiny upper teeth uh, or teeth on the roof of their mouths. Uh, frog teeth are really teeny tiny. They are not easily seen with the naked eye. You usually have to use a CT scan of a skeleton or microscopic photography in order to see these teeth. Um, uh, but in terms of frogs that have both an upper and lower set of teeth, there's only one known species of frogs that have this. This is Gunther's marsupial frogs. They have a set of upper and lower teeth, all extremely tiny teeth about the size of a grain of sand. So this is really weird uh, that this is the case for Gunther's marsupial frogs because these frogs lost their lower teeth 200 million years ago, along with these other frog species that don't have lower teeth. Uh, but it has re-evolved uh, these lower teeth, which it's unclear exactly why they have. Uh, it's really fascinating that that they can re-evolve these teeth after so long. Um, but it likely has something to do with grip. So, uh, you know, you think of sandpaper, right? You even though these teeth are the size of a grain of sand with sandpaper, it's got it's got a lot of traction. It's got a little grip. So uh, it's thought that with frog teeth, uh, whether they only have an upper set or they have that upper and lower set, uh, has something to do with providing some friction to keep struggling prey from escaping, um, especially when it comes to larger prey. So, uh, in fact, there are some species of frog that have developed a set of lower fangs that kind of look like buck teeth. Um, but really, these are bony projections. They're not teeth. They lack dentin. True teeth has dentin, whereas these bony projections uh, kind of look like little fangs, but they are not true teeth. Uh, but yeah, you do not need teeth to be a carnivore. So examples of mm, other carnivores that do not have teeth, giant anteaters do not have teeth. Their jaws barely function. Instead, they rely on a long, sticky tongue to capture and slurp up ants and termites. Similarly, pangolins have no teeth. Pangolins are those little living pine cone-like animals. Well, they're not that little, actually. They're... they're um, definitely an armful, but they have those scales that kind of look like a pine cone and they feed on ants and termites, but they don't have any teeth. They just have, you know, a tongue and kind of viscous saliva. Uh, pangolins will also eat stones to help pulverize food in their stomachs. Uh, stones that are eaten uh, in order to help with digestion are called gastroliths. Pangolin stomachs are also lined with spines, which help further macerate the insects they eat. So even though they don't have any teeth in their mouth, they do have ways to crush insects in their gizzard, which is interesting because this is a strategy also used by birds. Of course, birds do not have teeth. There are some birds, especially filter feeders, who will have kind of tooth-like ridges uh, in their beaks, but they're not true teeth. But most, many, many species of birds don't even have these. They rely instead on their beaks. Uh, they can be really sharp. They can be shaped differently in order to achieve different kind of things. 
but they don't have teeth. And they, like the pangolin, will actually sometimes swallow stones or sand uh, in order to help with digestion in their gizzard. Of course, beaks are also used by octopuses and squids who are also carnivores and they don't need teeth. They use these uh, beaks along with their tentacles in order to entrap and rip up and eat prey. Uh, another one of the world's biggest carnivores, in fact, one of the biggest animals, the biggest animal in the world, uh, has no teeth but is a carnivore. These are toothless whales, baleen whales, who use these broom-like baleen to sift out huge amounts of krill, which they gulp up. I know it's weird to think of a baleen whale as a carnivore, but they are. They eat krill. Krill is a living animal. It's meat. They will eat so many of them. They are actually a really, really good uh, carnivore. Very, very uh, high number of prey that they can get all at once. Uh, but yes, despite their prey being so small, baleen whales are carnivores and they don't have to use teeth to do it. And they are the world's largest animal. So teeth uh, are important for us, though, so brush them, you know? It's not like we can put brooms in our mouth and use that to filter soup. I mean, maybe we could. I don't recommend it, though. Keep those teeth brushed and flossed and, you know, like drink a lot of water. Anyways, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, I'm going to answer the last listener question. Ding dong, Las Culturistas calling. iHeart Podcast Awards 2023 Podcast of the Year, Las Culturistas, with SNL's Bowen Yang and comedian Matt Rogers. There's stuff happening in 2024 that we really need to address. Pop culture and huge guests like the latest episode with... Dua Lipa! The more I think about it, the more scared and nervous I get. Listen to the newest episode of Las Culturistas with Dua Lipa and all episodes on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Las Culturistas to start listening. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wildcard on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old <laughs> Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Next listener question. Recently, orchid mantis species have been shown that what was once thought to only be camouflage for mimicry are actually gliding surfaces too. 
What are your favorite surprise animal abilities only found years after the species was known and studied? This is from Murph the Murph. Uh, this is amazing. So orchid mantises, which are beautiful, beautiful insects. They uh, are a species of mantises that look like orchids. I mean, I the, the name is truly accurate. They have pinks and whites and green colors. And they have all of these like petal-like protrusions. Um, and they have these... Uh, petal-shaped uh, lobes on, uh, you know, basically their their legs, and it looks beautiful. It makes them look uh, like an orchid. It helps with their camouflage so that they can be both protected and an ambush predator, which is really cool. But the new news uh, is that they can also use them as gliding surfaces, essentially like because the surface area has increased, they can glide for short distances using these petals, which can also be used for camouflage, which is just beautiful and fantastic. Other discoveries of animals that we've known about for a really long time. I love it when there's like a, I don't want to say mundane animal because I think they're all really interesting, but an animal we know, it's well known, and then suddenly something new pops up where it's, we had no idea one of the f- the things that I think is really funny is we keep discovering that so many mammals biofluoresce, have biofluorescence, uh, and we don't know why. <laughs> so it started out with a few discoveries of mammals being biofluorescent. So biofluorescence means that they absorb and re-emit light. You can't see this with the naked human eye, but you can see it under black light. So this was discovered in opossums, flying squirrels, and platypuses, uh, and they were found to be biofluorescent. And then researchers started testing more mammals under blacklight. They did this with specimens in museum or research catalogs. So they kept finding more and more species who were biofluorescent, and the list kept getting longer and longer. So Wombats, bilbies, armadillos, red foxes, dolphins, cats, house cats, bats, zebras, big cats. Uh, They all were found to have biofluorescent fur or other body parts. In fact, 125 species of mammals were found to biofluoresce when Western Australia Museum put specimens under UV light. So, it's still not really well understood exactly what is causing this. Um, uh, the emerging pattern seems to be that nocturnal animals have stronger biofluorescence, but this is still something found in diurnal animals, animals that are uh, active during the day. So uh, another uh, pattern, I guess, is that white fur seems to be more likely to be biofluorescent. So like in the case of house cats, uh, only white fur has been found to be biofluorescent. It's the only type of fur that does so. So, uh, But in other species of animals, like there can be other colorations of fur that is biofluorescent. So yeah, it's really interesting. We kind of had no idea that this was a feature for so many mammals. Uh, and so it's I'll, I'll be keeping my eye on this for sure to find out if Uh, they come up with any more hypotheses or do any more testing to figure out why exactly this is the case. Is this just a basically like a evolutionary spandrel, something that 
ha- serves no function, but it's just it just happens to be there and it's cool? Or does it serve some kind of function? So yeah, it's very, very interesting. Another thing is I love it when we make new discoveries about ants because ants are so common and they're everywhere and it feels like we already know everything about ants, but then ants always surprise us. So, uh, of course, there are many different ant species. So uh, just because we know a bunch of things about one ant species doesn't mean we know everything about all the ant species. Uh, but still, it's really cool when we discover new things. So uh, there is a species of ant called the uh, Indian jumping ants, um, which are found in India. They are really interesting looking ants with elongated mandibles. And their colony structure is a little different from most ants. They have pretty small colonies, about 100 individuals. Uh, they do have queens, Uh, But the queen's position is a lot less secure and high up on a hierarchy than in typical ant colonies. You see workers that can rise to become queens and workers that can control who is their queen. So uh, if there is a queen who has not been approved of by the colony, she can be dethroned and placed in queen custody where a very weird body transformation can take place. So... When an old queen dies in one of these Indian jumping ant colonies, uh, a new queen is selected in a jousting competition. Yeah, this is very uh, medieval or Middle Ages. Uh, I'm not a historian. So uh, they have those elongated mandibles that I talk about, and they will essentially joust with each other until there is a clear dominant winner. That winner will become the new queen. And what happens when you attain power? Well, your brain shrinks and your ovaries expand. So yes, the queen's brain will shrink and her ovaries will expand. um, And she uh, assumes the position of being the breeding dominant queen. But if there is multiple uh, ants that are starting to develop into queens and one is unauthorized or if there's a queen that is not performing her royal duties correctly, uh, the worker ants will seize her into a restrictive hold. They don't kill her, though. Ants are more civilized than humans are when they are deposing a queen. Um, this ant is just held until its brain expands and ovaries shrinks And it biologically turns back into a worker. So it's kind of like a representative monarchy, democratic monarchy. It's a very violent one, but maybe not as violent as people. I'm just saying the ants may have some things figured out, you know, Uh, except for the part where their leader's brain shrinks. It's not like that happens with humans. Anyways, I really hope that you enjoyed this listener questions episode. If you uh, want your question to be answered, you can write to me at creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com. You can write to me on Twitter. Uh, If you dare uh, delve in that murkiness, I'm still Katie Golden there, K-A-T-I-E-G-O-L-D-I-N. And I will definitely keep doing these listener questions episode because I love answering your questions. It forces me to do research on topics sometimes or study up on things I've forgotten. So it's a learning experience for me as well. Help me help you help me 
help you to learn. Yes. Anyways, hope you're all doing well. Uh, thanks to the Space Cossacks for their super awesome song, Exolumina. Creature Feature is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts like the one you just heard, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or hey, guess what? Wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'll see you guys next Wednesday. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Ding dong, Las Culturistas calling. iHeart Podcast Awards 2023 Podcast of the Year, Las Culturistas, with SNL's Bowen Yang and comedian Matt Rogers. There's stuff happening in 2024 that we really need to address. Pop culture and huge guests like the latest episode with Dua Lipa. The more I think about it, the more scared and nervous I get. Listen to the newest episode of Las Culturistas with Dua Lipa and all episodes on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Las Culturistas to start listening.